When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. REMAX agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Pod Save the People. In this episode, we have the news as usual with me, Brittany Clinton, Sam. And then we are joined by Zach Norris, the author of We Keep Us Safe, to talk about the broken mythologies of how communities can protect themselves from crime and the solutions that actually work. And before we go, is remember that when we make demands in activism, when we make demands of the state, that the demand always has to be as big or bigger than the problem. Anything else is not a solution. Let's go. Hey y'all, it's the news. This is Brittany Packnett Cunningham at Miss Packetti on all social media. And this is Sam Sinyangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter. And this is Clint Smith at Clint Smith III. Aye, aye, aye. And this is DeRay at D-R-A-Y on Twitter. It has been a fascinating week for a whole host of reasons. Brexit, the Brexit officially occurred on the same day that here in America, the Senate Republicans were pretty much like, yeah, we pretty much know he did what y'all said he did, but we don't want y'all to call any witnesses or subpoena any documents to that effect. So, you know. The law, whatever. And in the midst of all of that, I won't say in spite of, but I think especially because of just how exhausted people are by this administration, their continued ridiculous tactics, uh, their continued efforts to completely circumvent all manner of democracy. People, I think, were equally as exhausted to experience what feels like the ongoing war of the surrogates between the campaigns. And look, I, I have said before, like, I believe in conflict as long as conflict is productive. And I think that we can disagree with one another, each other's candidates, each other's policy beliefs. We can disagree, as my mother likes to say, without being disagreeable. And that's not a civility pitch, but what it is is a recognition that come November, we're all going to have to get this thing done together. And how are we actually going to do that and making sure that we preserve relationships to get that done when it really counts? And so a lot of people are really exhausted from this war. A lot of people are worried that it is going to create a pathway for another Trump victory this year. What say y'all? It's getting hot out here. Uh, we are recording before the Iowa caucuses. Uh, by the time you hear this, the Iowa caucuses will be complete and there will be a flood of takes coming through your timeline. Iowa is also an interesting place because I was reading that like apparently there are three different ways someone can say that they won. We might be in a situation where we got Sanders and Warren and Biden all, or Buttigieg or, you know, this thing could go any which way. We will know by the time you're listening to it, but it is clear that it is heating up. Folks have taken the gloves off. And and just to echo Brittany's point, I think it's important to find the differences and to name the differences between candidates. I think it's important to debate. I think it's important to hold folks accountable for what they have done and said in their public 
uh, and and sometimes in their in their private lives before leading up to this moment. But with all that said, as Brittany said, we got to remain focused on the goal. So like point out the differences between candidates, vote for the person, just like vote for the person you want to be president. That's the other thing I'll say. I think it is fine to be strategic about who you want to vote for, but I think sometimes people overthink, and this is when electability is infused into it, right? But I think the bottom line is vote for the person you want to be president. Vote for the person who you believe in and let the rest happen. And then in the general, we get behind the nominee and we make it happen. This sort of back and forth between the Bernie camp and Bernie surrogates and Hillary Clinton defenders, even though you know Hillary Clinton's not running for president, uh, has been fascinating because to me it's highlighted some of the strengths and weaknesses of the various campaigns. You know, from Bernie, it's clear that the Bernie campaign have been incredible organizers. They have more individual donors than any other campaign. They have more volunteers by far than other campaigns. You know, I was just in Iowa a couple of days ago and people were telling me that, you know, they've had Bernie supporters knock on their door multiple times in the past couple of weeks and just hadn't seen that level of engagement from some of the other campaigns. So undoubtedly a really huge and prolific organizing effort happening right now from the Bernie folks. But at the same time, you see a weakness in the sense that that has caused trouble with message discipline and making sure that all of the different aspects of that coalition are operating on the same page. So even in the context of you know this latest quote unquote controversy, where you know, Rashida Tlaib had made some comments that Hillary supporters and Hillary fans were not happy with. Rashida Tlaib backtracked some of that. Um, but as she was backtracking it, you had another Bernie surrogate who was doubling down on those comments, and that was Michael Moore, right? And so, you know, just two different messages coming from the Bernie side, and parts of those messages could alienate uh, folks who Bernie's ultimately probably going to need to vote for him in the primary, and then if he wins the primary in the general. Um, but you're also seeing how different campaigns have operated differently. So the Warren campaign may not be at the same scale of, of the Bernie campaign, but at the same time, we're seeing her now campaigning along with Julian Castro and projecting this sort of message of unity where even you know two former competitors on the campaign trail are now working together. Castro endorsed Warren. And then from the Biden side, like, I don't know what we're seeing from the Biden side. I, you know, I couldn't tell you how strong their ground game was or their organizing operation. And they haven't really been as out in front in the news either. So, you know, that's a, a very different thing. I don't even know what's going on. Maybe it's all behind the scenes and more low key, but I guess we'll see how well they do in the primary. Um, so that's what all of this has been illuminating for better understanding how the campaigns are run. If those folks are elected, how governing might be influenced in the various bases and coalitions that, you know, will be playing a role in influencing it. One of the things that I am hopeful about is that I remember in 2014, and Brittany, you definitely remember this, Clint, you remember, and Sam, everybody, you remember when we were saying things were racist or problematic or frustrating, like it was like a small group of people who were on the internet being like, you know what, we probably should, you know, interrogate that more. That was unacceptable. Da, da, da. And five years later, like the whole space has grown up a little bit and just like it doesn't take somebody who identifies as an activist or somebody 
who identifies as an organizer or a feminist to look and be like, okay, that was sort of problematic and that's a good thing. And I say that in the context of this surrogate battle that's happening because the reality is I think that there are a lot of people who are not being swayed as much by the celebrities and the da-da-da-da-da, having these opinions about things, but really like they know more themselves. I think that people are way more informed than they used to be about some issues. I think the other thing, and this is what worries me about the surrogate battle, is that I think that people are exhausted. I hope that people aren't like completely exhausted by the time the election comes. I know a lot of people who like aren't activists who sort of don't do politics as like a day-to-day thing who just are tuned out all of a sudden because they're like, this just isn't the way I want to engage right now, especially with the world being what it is. So I'm hopeful that it doesn't become nastier than it already is. Yes. And so this is coming out the day after voting in Iowa, and it is also coming out on the fourth day of Black History Month 2020. And there was a really great New Yorker article by the writer Casey Kep. And she did this piece, this like wonderful profile of different activists and organizations that are working to help preserve historical sites throughout the country that are sites of Black history. And there was this one piece that she had that I found really striking where she said, of the more than 95,000 entries on the National Register of Historic Places, the list of sites deemed worthy of preservation by the federal government, only 2% focus on the experience of Black Americans. I have been, as as you all know, writing and thinking about different places across the country and how they reckon with their relationship to the history of slavery and as part of my book research. And I, I had not come across that specific number, which I kind of knew anecdotally, but did you know, seeing the numerical value was was really striking. And part of what it had me thinking about is what site of black history, whether it be a monument or memorial or site or a place, what is a place that is a particularly meaningful for you? And I I want to mention one for me. I went to Galveston, Texas on Juneteenth last year. And Galveston, for folks who don't know, is the place where Juneteenth, which is uh, June 19th, which celebrates the day that Black people in Texas were informed of their freedom because different parts of Texas were so far removed from the center of, of action during the Civil War and were incredibly rural. And so there were a lot of folks who actually didn't know that they had been freed via the Emancipation Proclamation. And so I went to the place where the proclamation was read, the general order, and they have a celebration there every year of folks in the local Galveston community. And they're the descendants of people who whose ancestors were enslaved in Galveston and around Galveston. And it was this remarkable, powerful experience uh, to be in the place where 250,000 people had been told that they were free. And it was an incredible moment to be in the room with the descendants of those people. And uh, there was this really incredible moment where they were singing Lift Every Voice and Sing, which is the Black National Anthem, a song that I've heard in church, at school, at in youth programs, and, and all over the place for, for so much of my life. But there was something inexplicable, something so remarkable and so powerful about being in that room with those folks singing that song on that land and all that it represented. It was an amazing, amazing experience. I write about it in the book, and I'd love to hear what, what other folks are, are thinking about. Well, first of all, Clint, beyond that particularly powerful experience, my mom always said that if you don't know all three verses of the Black National Anthem, that it don't count. (laughs) And I had to learn all three verses as a very young person, in part because I also grew up as a singer. So I would sing it often at church events and Black history events, et cetera, et cetera. But I'm one of those people who, when it's time to sing the Black National Anthem, I look around to see who's using their paper for verses two and three, because mama made sure I was prepared. Um, 
But in terms of a place, I really love this question, and I'm glad that you brought this news up. The place that came to mind immediately for me is the DuSable Museum in Chicago, Illinois. My dad is a native Chicagoan. Shout out to the South Side. And whenever we went to Chicago, which was often because we grew up in St. Louis and we would get on the Amtrak and take that quick little train ride up to Chicago. Sometimes we would take Southwest, but usually he liked uh, the quietness of the train ride. And we would go up there and visit my grandmother and he would always take us to the DuSable Museum. It was founded in 1961 by Dr. Margaret Taylor Burroughs and her husband, Charles Burroughs, essentially to uh, celebrate black culture, black art and black history, because we know that all of those things were being consistently overlooked by the museum practice at that time. There was no Blacksonian. So many of the regional African-American history and art museums that have been created since were modeled after the DuSable Museum. It was originally the Ebony Museum of Negro History and Art, but eventually it was named after Jean-Baptiste Pont du Sable. But he was a Haitian fur trader and the first non-native permanent settler in Chicago. So many people consider him to be the founder of Chicago. And I just remember going through there and being inundated with the power of the expansiveness of blackness. Um, There was art and history in there from all across the diaspora. And I'm so grateful that I was exposed to that at such an incredibly young age. It became my favorite field trip with my father that I could always, always rely on happening. I haven't been there in some years and I'm actually realizing I need to make sure that I go back. It is an important site in Chicago. It is an important site in this country. And it is a reminder to us that yes, African-American history is American history and that our memories should consistently extend to all that the people of the African diaspora have brought us that we continue to benefit from every single day. So of the many different historical markers and historical events that are a part of you know Black history, one of the things that has always resonated has been this thread of resistance and insurrection and uprisings that have really been happening over the past four centuries. And the stories of each of those events, the Black people who put their lives on the line and risked them to defend themselves and defend their communities and fight back, right, throughout history uh, against oppressive institutions. And one of the stories that I have been fascinated by and I'm always trying to learn more about is the Houston riot of 1917, also called the Camp Logan Mutiny. This was an event that I didn't learn about in history class. It wasn't in the history books. But if you don't know about it, definitely research it and learn more because this was an event where a all-Black battalion of the 24th U.S. Infantry Regiment in 1917, like in the context of World War I, they were shipped into Houston as a military company in order to build a barracks there called Camp Logan. And while they were there, they experienced the intense uh, violent racism of that was happening there. It's 1917. It's Houston. It's in the context of Jim Crow. And some of the soldiers witnessed uh, an incident of police violence where white police officers dragged a black woman out of her house and began beating her in the street. Uh, And so these black soldiers intervened. The police then began to beat up the black soldiers and shot at and then captured 
one of those black soldiers. And then this infantry, you know, we're talking about over a hundred black soldiers then organized to not only find and take back uh, and keep safe the folks who were captured by the police, but then to fight back. And they actually organized, they stole guns and ammunition. Over a hundred black soldiers marched into Houston, defeated the police department, and it was a massive insurrection. Ultimately, the police and the National Guard came in, and ultimately a number of soldiers were tried and then hung in response. Um, But this was a, a huge uprising, and it demonstrated that this one group, this one military battalion of Black soldiers effectively took over the entire city, defeated the police department, and fought back and defended themselves. And it's a moment, uh, one of many instances of self-defense and organizing and essentially fighting back uh, against oppressive institutions that, that is really fascinating and something to learn more about. Mine is a Baltimore landmark. I don't know if any of you have been there, but it is uh, the Great Blacks and Wax Museum is in Baltimore. It is very close to the school system building, and it was built in the 1980s, and it is like 100 wax figures of important Black people, and pretty much everybody goes there for a field trip. It's like the hottest thing to do when you're in elementary school for Black History Month. Like, literally, I I must have been to the Blacks and Wax Museum a million times, but... What was interesting about it is I remember as a kid reading all these stories about Mary McLeod Bethune and, and so many other people. And like the Wax Museum was the first place where like it ever seemed real. And then it used to have like a slave, like a refashioned sort of part of what a slave ship was. And I remember we had to like get waivers signed by our parents to like go down and see it. It was like a whole deal. And I remember seeing it for the first time and coming back and being like, I can't believe they put people in like when I was in elementary school. And just learning about it. And it was started by two academics who thought that this was important. And it went from like 2,000 visitors to 300,000 a year. And it is dope to see the way that people in community just decide like something should exist and it starts to exist and to bring history closer to people so that you don't always have to travel outside of your home to see what's happening. So my news is about Donald Trump signing an expanded travel ban uh, this past week. So in the context of all that has been happening with the impeachment, with the primary, sort of behind the scenes, what the Trump administration has just started implementing is an expansion of the travel ban. Now it is affecting a whole host of additional nations that include many of Africa's most populous nations. So it includes a ban on the process of becoming a permanent citizen. So it's not It's not a ban on all travel to the United States from people in a set of nations, but rather it is a restriction on the ability of people to apply for and obtain permanent visas to stay in the United States. And it affects people coming from Nigeria, which is the most populous country in Africa, as well as Myanmar, Eritrea and Kyrgyzstan. Uh, And then also there is a ban on the ability of people from Sudan and Tanzania, which is where my dad's from, to actually be able to participate in the diversity visa program. Some people are calling this online the Africa ban as a broad expansion of the existing travel ban, which affected predominantly Muslim countries, to now affect very large African nations. And it's something that we haven't really heard 
covered much in the media in the context of impeachment and all that's going on, um, but nevertheless seems to be uh, an expansion of an existing racist policy that is affecting uh, predominantly black and brown nations across the world now. You know, Sam, I am glad that you brought this up. It actually relates pretty closely to my news because, as you've already shared, this administration has been trying since the very beginning of their campaign to dramatically undermine immigration as we know it, which was already so deeply imperfect and broken between the wall, the detainment camps, the removal of aid and opportunity like TPS, these newly expanded travel bans. We have found ourselves exhausted, frankly, with his desire to keep a promise to his base to continue to make other people the enemy. And I discovered that this week there was a new rule that went into effect that continues to assist these really disgusting efforts. One of the deeply insidious ways, in addition to what you've already said, Sam, that he's trying to do this is he's actually trying to dramatically reduce the amount of travel and immigration that allows immigrants to give birth stateside. So essentially, the administration has said time and time again that they want to end birthright citizenship. The idea that if you are not a citizen of the country, but your child is born here, that they are. And as a person who theoretically can give birth myself, although I have not tried yet, I find this one particularly horrifying. Essentially, the new rule directs consular officers to assume that if someone is pregnant and seeking a tourist visa during a stretch of time when they could potentially give birth while they are in the country, they should actually assume that they are trying to give birth in the country and engage in what they call birth tourism. This applies specifically to B tourist visas, which only actually apply to a certain number of countries. And as you can imagine, the countries that are exempted from having to apply for a B visa are most of Europe, um, as well as a few other countries, just 30 nine countries are exempted from this. The rest of the countries around the world, most of the places where the black and brown folks live, are not exempted from this visa. There are exceptions to this visa, um, but advocates of reproductive rights are understandably worried that these exemptions will actually be followed. And in order for someone to obtain an exemption, there are a bunch of extra hoops that they have to go through, extra red tape, extra documentation, and extra steps that they have to go through to prove that, for example, they and their children are in jeopardy in their home country or that they need treatment that can only be provided in the U.S. They have gone as far as giving people pregnancy tests before flying to countries through which it is easier to immigrate into America. These new measures between the ones that I've described and this expanded travel ban that you talked about should be enough to remind us all of what is at stake in this election. And it should continue keep us on our toes to help us remember that this administration will stop at nothing to create an America that they want it to look like. Yeah, and I really think that that's the the essence of it, right? And we, we've talked at length over the past three years of the Trump presidency and then the two years he was running that part of the project of Trumpism is to make America white. And encoded in Make America Great Again is to make America white again. And this is so clearly a part of that. And because they are doing this piece with Nigeria and, and some of these other African countries. They do it under the pretense of safety, and they do it under the pretense of them not having secure means by which to prevent terrorists from entering the country. 
But the giveaway is that this is only a proposal that affects permanent residents, right? So theoretically, if your goal is to keep terrorists from Nigeria coming in, it's not clear why you would have chosen only to bar people seeking to settle in the U.S. permanently if a terrorist could just as easily get into the U.S. on a tourist visa. That undercuts the rationale behind the ban and clearly on its face demonstrates it to be illegitimate. Um, and then also, you know, this is personal for me. My my wife's family is Nigerian. There are over 300,000 Nigerian immigrants that come to this country every year. If a ban in th- had been in place like this, you know, my wife's mother may never have been able to to enter this country. And, and that is hurtful. And that is that hurts my family. That hurts my people I love. It is upsetting and deeply disturbing to see the way in which this administration continues to double down on this. And I think it's another reminder, there is a lot of power in executive action, right? And so you may have differences with, you want this person's going to have this healthcare plan, this person's going to have this healthcare plan, this person's going to do this and that. Again, super legitimate differences, differences that should be debated and litigated. But when it comes down to it, part of this is also the executive authority that a president has and a Democrat, whatever whoever the Democratic nominee is, their feet need to be held to the fire 100%. And moments like this are a reminder of what's at stake beyond the specific legislation that may or may not make it through Congress when a certain person is in office. Because this is impacting hundreds of thousands of people's and millions of people's lives, right? Like all of the people who are already here who have family who hope to come join them. So a lot of disturbing things to unpack from these most recent policy initiatives. As an organizer, the thing that I think about when Trump continues to do this stuff is that there was a time where people literally were just like, the government can't move quickly. That like, you know, the reason why we have to ask for the demands in the next 10, 20 years is because that's how long it takes to move an apparatus. And if anything, Trump's actions are a reminder that the government can move as quick as it wants to. That who thought you could ban whole countries in a tweet? Could you actually move a mechanism this big that quickly? And the answer is yes. And I say this because my organizing reminder in this is that the demand always has to be as big or bigger than the problem. The other thing that this reminds me of is that the Department of Homeland Security released a statement to justify this by saying, it is logical and essential to thoroughly screen and vet everyone seeking to travel or immigrate to the United States. However, there are some countries from whom the United States does not receive the necessary information about its travelers, and as a result, pose a national security or public safety risk that warrants tailored travel restrictions. That is just a lie. They've never demonstrated any piece of evidence to suggest there is a safety risk with any of the countries that are part of the ban. Now, what's interesting is that the ban takes effect on February 22nd, and they are saying that they're giving the countries a chance to address the alleged deficiencies, but secret is there aren't really any deficiencies. And what it'll do, as we talked about, is it'll suspend the immigration visas for some Nigerians, which is a huge problem. It'll offer restrictions for Eritrea, Kyrgyzstan, and Myanmar. And what I didn't realize is that two of the countries, Sudan and Tanzania, they'll be blocked from the diversity visa lottery altogether. I also didn't know that Nigerians make up the largest population of African immigrants living in the United States with a number over 300,000. So we see Trump still doing it. Uh, We got to get him out of here in 2020. Let's do it. And one thing I'll just add is that I think it is tempting to fall into what I think is a trap, right, of saying, because part of what is so backwards and so insidious about the ban against Nigeria, um, it is both the most populous country on the continent of Africa, and also the vast majority of people who come to the United States from Nigeria are what folks refer to as 
high functioning or highly skilled immigrants, right? And so they're coming and they're engineers and they're doctors and they're scientists and they're this and that. And I think what can happen is that it can be really tempting to say, look at all the things that Nigerians are contributing to this country. Like that's the kind of immigrant that we want to come. We want the doctors and we want the uh, engineers and we want the chemists. And I think it is important to recognize that someone may contribute a material good to a country they are coming to, and also not to predicate the decision as to whether or not a person is allowed entry into this country and allowed residence into this country based on a transactional framework, right? Based on this idea that like, oh, they can give us this, so we'll give them a place to be, and ignoring questions of safety, questions of security, questions of sanctuary, and not falling into the trap of like, these are the good immigrants and these are the bad immigrants. And we want the good immigrants, but we don't want those other immigrants because then we end up holding folks who are immigrating to this country to a standard that we would never hold ourselves to, that we would never hold our own children to, right? And so I think it's important to just be mindful of the language that we're using and the framing that we're using when we think about who is or is not allowed to come to this country. Yeah, and we're creating a tiered system of of value and judgment when we should be caring for human beings, right? I could not agree with that more. And as a reminder, even if we all manage to get our head on straight in November 2020, no matter who the nominee is, there is still nothing that has been done at a large scale to guarantee that everyone has their vote counted and has their voice heard. So just remember to do all that you can between now and November and far beyond to protect and secure the vote for every single person. You can visit fairfight.com. You can visit forwardfla.com. You can visit votesaveamerica.com to do your part. My news is about this recall surgical gown. So there's a recall surgical gowns because the country's largest producer of, of surgical gowns identified that some might be contaminated. So this recall impacts about 9 million gowns, uh, including 7.7 that were already distributed to 2,800 facilities across the country. There are elective surgeries and surgeries across the country that have had to be rescheduled or postponed because the surgeons can't walk into the operating room with something that is sterile because they don't have it because these things have been contaminated. It put me down this rabbit hole of thinking about like who surgeries, like how do black people sort of face in surgeries? Like what is the surgery landscape? And lo and behold, what do you think? We find that the disparities show up uh, in surgical outcomes with black patients in ways that uh, you would probably expect. So we find that black patients experience higher crew mortality rates than white patients, which is interesting. So in things like gastric bypass surgeries, black patients are significantly more likely to die in hospital than white patients. Larger disparities are noted in higher risk surgeries. So when you look at surgeries for a cervical spine, stuff like that, black patients have 1.57 times higher mortality than white patients, despite adjusting for age, insurance, status, and geographic region. There's a fascinating study that was done about uh, lung transplants. And lung transplant surgeries, interestingly, is one of the only areas in the surgical space where there was no significant difference in survival amongst the black and white subgroups, which is interesting. But the data also shows that across a whole range of surgeries, Black people suffer higher rates of in-hospital complications and or disease recurrence. What's interesting is that when the studies compare Hispanic and white surgical mortality, they are 
largely out of the 13 of the 15 studies found that the outcomes among Hispanics were as good or better than that of white patients. Asians uh, were as good or better than white patients as well. And you start to understand like why this is happening. Some of it is that people are underinsured. Some of it is that people have underlying issues that are exacerbated by poverty. And what's interesting too is that socioeconomic status can be linked as an independent predictor of surgical mortality. And it made me think of all these things. So I wanted to bring it here. Dre, this is fascinating. I had no idea that this was happening, but as you said, I'm not surprised. Uh, it seems that on every single indicator, right, your ability to access quality health care, uh, if you do have health care, like your ability to actually survive an operation that you have the coverage for, at every single level, there are these racial disparities, right? And it's a reminder that life in America is fundamentally different depending on race, depending on class, and that we have to work at every level when thinking about policy to address like, not only the gap in coverage for healthcare, but also the elements of structural racism that impact health disparities in terms of the environments in which we are living in, uh, in terms of our access to a range of other resources and factors that are correlated with health. Uh, and then also the gap in medical care that is provided by doctors when you're on the operating table or doctors, what they prescribe you. All of those things are impacted by race and we have to work to unpack and then dismantle those barriers wherever they are. You know, I gave a talk uh, earlier this week at Columbia Children's Hospital in New York City, and it was what's called Grand Rounds. And so essentially, it is doctors from multiple aspects of the hospital, uh, professors, nurses, medical professionals of all stripes who come together to learn and talk about uh, issues. And I heard from someone that I was one of the first, if not one of the only non-medical professionals there to talk about issues of diversity, equity, inclusion, and liberation. And I recognize that both as um, a real privilege and honor, but also as a responsibility. One of the things that I heard from um, some of the doctors present was that the medical profession often prides itself on being apolitical, on being uh, neutral in matters of politics. But healthcare is not, nor has it ever been neutral. It has always been as political as the identities of the people that they serve and care for. Um, and as long as there are disparities based on your race, your immigration status, your sexual orientation, your gender identity and presentation, your income level, your insurance status, then there will be politics in medicine. Uh, and so one of the things that I tried to encourage folks to do was to recognize that all of them have a collective responsibility to provide an excellent level of care for all people and not continue to disproportionately put that on the shoulders of medical professionals who identify with marginalized backgrounds. So it shouldn't just be trans doctors who are capable of properly caring for trans patients. It shouldn't just be black doctors who are capable of caring for black patients well and listening to them and providing 
providing both the kind of medical support, but also the kind of socio-emotional support that we know is necessary in a hospital setting. And so as I think broadly about what the medical profession can do, it can think about itself not as an apolitical institution, but as a deeply political institution because it has the power of life and death in its hands. And thus far, that power is not being leveraged equally. Every single person that works within those halls, no matter their role, has a responsibility to ensure that the level of care everyone receives is excellent because health is a human right. That's the news. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondery's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, the Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now, what's the first thing that you'd do if you had a ton of extra time in a day? Maybe I'd take a nap, go for a run, talk to some friends. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But the question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Now, the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and to make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you help you process the world around you, help you think through the most important things, how you spend your time, where you spend your energy, especially your emotional energy. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash people. The Crooked Store's latest collection has a clear message for anyone trying to take away abortion rights. Don't. The No Trespassing collection features four different designs, each inspired by a different state where abortion is under attack. There's Stay Out of My Swamp for Florida, Stay Out of My Hole for Arizona, Stay Out of My Prickly Pear for Texas, and Stay Out of My Strip for Nevada. But obviously, I'll be wearing these no matter where I am. A portion of proceeds from the collection will go to Vote Save America's F-Bands, the Fight Back Fund, which currently is supporting abortion rights organizations across Arizona, Nevada, and Florida. Head to cricket.com slash store to shop. It's 2024. We're facing another presidential election with huge stakes. You want to help. You don't know where your money will actually make a difference or how to figure that out. Ensure you love to take an edible and not think about it, but you can't because you do care. Let Vote Save America make it easy for you with their new anxiety relief program. Here's how it works. 
You set up a monthly recurring donation at the level that feels right for you, and Vote Save America will send 100% of it to the grassroots organizations and down-ballot races that need it most. Then, at the end of the month, they'll tell you where your dollars went. That's it. Set it and forget it. Vote Save America has already raised $52,000 in monthly recurring donations. Love it. That's great. From over 1,000 amazing, sustaining donors who've signed up and trusted Vote Save America to make their dollar go further. But we still have a long way to go, and Vote Save America needs your help to get there. Sign up at votesaveamerica.com and enjoy your edible. <laughs> Legal disclaimer, paid for by Vote Save America, votesaveamerica.com, not authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. Did you know that women make up 56% of law students? That's grounds for bragging rights at the dinner table for your conservative uncle who still thinks women belong in the kitchen. It's clear that the future of the legal field is female. So why are so many legal podcasts and reviews authored by men? Hi, I'm Leah Littman. I'm Kate Shaw. And with Melissa Murray, we are the hosts of Strict Scrutiny. Each week, we break down the latest headlines and biggest legal questions facing our country through the lens of diverse voices to give you expert views you won't hear anywhere else. Strict Scrutiny is your guide to the Supreme Court. New episodes drop every Monday, plus bonuses whenever the Supreme Court takes away another one of our rights. Make sure to subscribe to Strict Scrutiny wherever you get your podcasts. And now my conversation with Zach Norris. As the effects of aggressive policing and mass incarceration harm historically marginalized communities and tear families apart, how do we define safety? Community leader and lawyer Zach Norris lays out a radical way to shift the conversation about public safety away from fear and punishment and toward growth and support systems for our families and communities. Here's our conversation. Zach, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. Oh, I'm really appreciated, Dre. It's a pleasure. So I'm excited to talk to you about your new book that's coming out very shortly, but also excited to talk to you about the work that you do and the work that you've done before the book and the work that you plan to do in 2020 and beyond. So how did you like get into the work of criminal justice? What was your sort of path to this work? I grew up in East Oakland um, and East Oakland, as they say in the Souls of Mischief song, uh, 93 to infinity sometimes gets a little hectic. I was sheltered uh, from a lot of that growing up, um, being light-skinned African-American male, also going to Catholic school, basically K through 12. I didn't have to experience the ravage that the war on drugs and crack cocaine, that impact on my neighborhood. So it wasn't actually until I was an undergrad at Harvard that I started to think really deeply about issues of social injustice. And it was as a result of seeing young people my age at Harvard using and abusing drugs, getting in fights in the school gymnasium. But it was always clear that they were more than their worst mistakes. So they got counseling, they got the support they needed, and then they went back to school. Um, Meanwhile, friends and family back home in East Oakland were getting locked up, were having their lives derailed permanently as a result of doing many of the same things. And so that was kind of an eye-opening experience and what led me to an interest in social justice, period. And what has your work been at the Alaveca Center? How did you how did you get there? And and how would you describe that work for people who have never heard of the center, who don't understand sort of this work of organizing in this way? The Ella Baker Center is first of all named after Ella Baker, who was a brilliant black woman, leader in the freedom movement of the 60s, and she believed in the power of everyday people to make change from students to sharecroppers. And we try to build on her legacy by 
advancing what we call a books not bars, jobs not jails, healthcare and housing not handcuffs agenda. And that means that we do organizing, we do policy advocacy, we're up in the media, we're doing anything and everything we can to move resources away from punishment and prisons and towards investment in communities because we believe that's ultimately what makes communities most safe. In terms of how I got involved, I was an intern. I was a law school student intern. We were engaged in this campaign to stop what would have been the largest per capita juvenile hall in the country from being built. They wanted to build a juvenile hall bigger than Chicago's Cook County Juvenile Hall. And we said this is going to be too big, too far, too racist. This was around the turn of the century where folks like Hillary Clinton were calling youth of color super predators. And we used hip-hop, we used poetry slams in their, their board meetings to basically challenge this idea that Alameda County, a Bay Area progressive county, needed to have the largest per capita juvenile hall in the country. And we were successful, and we won that campaign, and that was like a spark for me, like, oh, we can actually make change. Um, so from there on, I was hooked, and I've been with the Alabaker Center in many ways pretty much ever since, um, almost 20 years later. I love it. Now take us to the book, We Keep Us Safe, Building Secure, Just, and Inclusive Communities. And in the text, when you sort of engage in this project of identifying the us versus them and and sort of how that paradigm leads to harm for, for most of us, many of us, like why a book? You've done a lot of organizing. You've been in a lot of communities. Like why a book? Why now? You know, it's interesting because I have done this kind of rah-rah activism and power to the people for a very long time. And I had just gotten the job as the executive director at the Ella Baker Center. Me and my partner were fortunate to be able to buy a home in Oakland around 2013. We were in there for about six months, loving the home. Everything's great. We go away on a weekend vacation, come back, and the house has been broken into. There's glass on the floor. And my daughters were shook. They were toddlers at this time. And so we're like trying to talk with them, trying to figure it out. Had somebody come and talk with them who's kind of a counselor, restorative justice person, thinking they're kind of on their way. And it happens again like six months later. And this time they had actually broken into the house, tried to go through my daughter's bedroom. There's glass on their on their bed. And I'm like holding this giant shard of glass in my hand. And I'm just thinking like, there has to be a different way. I'm having trouble just explaining to my daughter what's happening here, what safety is really about, and there's so much mythology about what makes us safe. And I actually need to really delve deep into and explain what I think actually makes us safe. So the book is really about challenging the predominant mythologies around what keeps us safe and putting forward a different vision of a culture of care that I believe will actually keep folks safe. What kind of myths do you feel like we have to engage when we talk about this idea of safety, even with people on the left, people who ostensibly agree with us? There are all kinds of myths in terms of this criminal injustice system, as I see it. One is just that more police means more safety automatically. The other is that the kind of law and order myth is what I call it, is people see that courtroom show and think that most people get their day in court, even though 95% of people plea out. Another one is that prisons make us safe, even though we know that prisons actually often exacerbate and worsen cycles of poverty, violence, and incarceration. And the last one, and this one is super important, I think, is that 
survivors of crime knee-jerk just want longer sentences. But if you actually talk to survivors of crime, like I just talked with um, folks out in Stockton, this woman named Jean, she had lost her son to gun violence in the city of Stockton. Two people involved, one white, one black. White person gets off, black person still in prison. And, you know, she wants justice and accountability, but she also understands that these cycles of incarceration and violence must end. And you don't actually do that by just locking people up and taking them from communities and bringing them back worse off than when they went in. And so those are some of the mythologies that I deal with in the book. And I hope that people find kind of across the political spectrum that there's a way for them to understand and see themselves as parents, as students, as teachers, as as just ordinary people in this society. And one of the chapters in the book is called Preventing Harms. What do you mean by that? And I ask because there's some people who sort of think that prevention is actually like the, it's like scaring people about jail, that the police do the prevention work, that that is actually what the prevention work should be. How do you help sort of push us about how we prevent harm in community? Well, thankfully, there are some amazing folks doing amazing work on this, um, like Devon Bogan in Richmond. Richmond, California, in 2005, had one of the highest per capita murder rates in the country. City had declared a state of emergency. Everybody's up in arms. What are we going to do? City council meeting after city council meeting. And one city council meeting, Devon comes and says, I have an idea. I want to propose a mentorship program for these 30 young men that the police have already identified as being responsible for most of the crime in the city of Richmond and most of the homicides in particular. And most folks were like, that's crazy. Mentorship. What are you talking about? But the city had really tried everything else. They had tried to make the case on these folks. They had tried to do all the tough on crime um, law and order strategies and tactics and nothing had worked. He got these young men, brought them to one of the nicest Um, rooms in Richmond City Hall overlooking the bay and said, look, everybody's up in arms about violence in the city of Richmond, yet no one has talked to you about what you think should be done. I want to provide you with some basic supports. I'm going to provide you with some mentorship on a daily basis, a monthly stipend. I'm going to provide you with travel opportunities so you can see a little bit beyond Richmond. And, you know, these young folks were all in Of course, the media caught wind of this pretty quickly because they were actually paying these young men to be in this program. And the media was like, wait, let me get this right. You are paying people not to shoot each other. But it was working. And so the city defended it. Then these young men got into a fight right at City Hall and everybody was totally ready to pull the plug. But folks came together. They rallied around the program, really demonstrated its success. And it was incredibly successful, a 70% drop in the homicide rate in the city of Richmond. Young men who were previously afraid to go across the city were now in relationship with some of their former rivals. Shopkeepers were able to open their doors longer. Parents were able to take their kids to the park. So it transformed not just the lives of these young men, but really the city of Richmond as a whole. And people need to understand that that's the kind of program we should be investing in deeply. Um, Meanwhile, we know this administration is putting forward this kind of relentless pursuit idea, which is the same thing that we've done for the past 40 years that has totally failed. So if we want to look at prevention and what really makes communities safe, we should look at programs like Advanced Peace and the work of Devon Bogan. 
And there are a lot of people who will hear that and be like, okay, that makes a lot of sense to me. Why do you think, Zach, though, those things haven't been able to scale? What do you think is like holding us back? We see these proof points. We're like, we get it. It clearly makes sense. The outcomes move. But yet we've not, like these solutions are not the solutions that get scaled across the country. The short answer is that there are a greedy few. Sometimes people call them the powers that be that want to keep the system as it is in place. Because they know that if we continue to operate under a framework of fear, that we will continue to point to our neighbor as the problem, our neighbor around the block or our neighbor in a distant land. And we will be distracted and divided in ways that those greedy few will continue to benefit from. I call them in the book the architects of anxiety, like the president we have in the White House right now, who continues to blame and scapegoat entire communities and put forward these things that they know aren't solutions, but they know will continue to drive wedges in our society that will prevent us from actually coming together to support one another. I think the shortest way to public safety is to actually take care of the public, but unfortunately, not everybody is seen as part of the public. And that's what I'm aiming to do with the book is help build some of that empathy so people can be more responsive to these common sense solutions. And a lot of personal stories in the book. Can you talk about why you chose to include personal stories in the book in this way? And like, what was the goal of that? What I do in the book in terms of telling stories is actually try to reimagine three different pretty tragic stories within the book just to help people build the muscle of saying, you know, some of these outcomes in terms of people being killed in their neighborhoods, in terms of people spending their lives in prison could actually be different if we made different choices at different points in these folks' lives. Um, I talk about Marlena and James, uh, a woman who lost her parents at the hand of her own brother, and the way in which there's a series of predictable steps that James went through in the criminal justice system that worsened his mental health status, that worsened his dependence on substances, and that ultimately led to the tragic murder of his parents. And that's the kind of story that I think people don't want to necessarily deal with until it impacts them. And I think that if we're thinking about how to make strategic interventions from kindergarten all the way on, we can actually prevent a lot of those tragedies from happening. And that's what I hope people get in reading the book. I'd love to know, too, like how your perspective on this has changed over 20 years I've been deeply involved in the police and criminal justice work, like really deep for since the protests. And I was an organizer in high school and then a teacher and stuff like that. But I was a direct service provider and like I opened up an after school center. Da, da, da. So I wasn't really involved in policy and sort of big picture things. I was like intimately on the ground focused on these on these sort of day to day issues. And only recently in the past five years have I zoomed out and looked sort of at a broader perspective. But you have been doing this work in a range of areas for 20 years. I'd love to know, like. What you've seen sort of change or like, are we, is it better? Is it worse? Or do you not think about it in terms of better or worse? But like, how do you think about it? I definitely think things are better and worse. <laughs> um, I think they're better in the sense that like, there's this common perception that among many people, a growing number of people, that mass incarceration is a problem that is too expensive, according to conservatives. Um, so there's this kind of range of folks from Michelle Alexander to like Newt Gingrich who are like, yes, prison reform makes sense. 
policing reform to a lesser extent, but folks are getting behind that as well. Um, and then Donald Trump comes along and he's stoking all the same um, scapegoating fires and trying to divide and distract. So that makes things worse again. So it's a complicated political terrain. What I think and what is present to me is that we need visual aids at this moment because it's one thing to say, you know, prisons, punishment, policing aren't the answer that ultimately drive what makes community safe. It's another thing to actually show and prove what we mean by real community safety. And so what we've done is put forward a vision of community safety in Oakland that we call Restore Oakland. It's a 18,000 square foot building, houses a restaurant run by formerly incarcerated folks and others who have been locked out of opportunity, a dedicated space for restorative justice so people can be held accountable and yet still held in community. And it's also home to good organizing so that we can hold elected officials accountable to this vision of actually investing in the things that make communities most safe. And what I think is important about that is like people can see it, they can feel it, they can walk around the building because prisons have, you know, crowded out the public imagination in terms of what safety is. Shows like Law and Order have done the same. So what is really important to me in this moment is like we visualize what's possible in the same way that like solar panels and wind turbines help to demonstrate, hey, there's a different energy future possible in this country. I think we need to visualize the different community safety future possible in this country. I like this idea of um, helping to create space for the public imagination. I want to ask you to... There are people sort of on our side who still participate in some of the harmful messages, right? There's still people who like ostensibly, you know, agree with us who still cannot imagine a world without prisons, right? They like, it's just like, it literally is beyond them. What is your way of engaging in those arguments? And I think there are a lot of people who probably listen, not a lot, hopefully, but enough who are listening to this conversation who also like wouldn't probably ask you the question of like, do you really believe, like, are you, do you really believe in the end of prisons or do you, are you shooting for a big goal knowing that we won't get there, but we'll get close, you know? Yeah. I mean, I listen to the folks who have actually survived crime, um, like Marlena and her perception in terms of what needs to happen at this moment in terms of her brother who um, actually murdered her parents was that she wouldn't feel safe with him outside in the community in this moment if he weren't in some kind of institution, be it mental health or prison. I don't necessarily identify as a prison abolitionist, though I do believe a world without prison is possible. I say that because I think the path to getting lots of people to understand how it is possible is actually by showing, improving, and talking about what difference it'll make if we actually invest in communities. And I want to give you one quick example, which is just California. In California, in the 60s and 70s, we were making investment in education and employment opportunities, and certainly nothing was perfect, but the civil rights movement was helping to build progress and create prosperity for more communities. And then this wrecking ball called mass incarceration came in in the late 70s, and it was guided by the prison guard union and the greedy few politicians and Crime Victims United, which put out this narrative that the only way to safety was to build more prisons, and that if you did it, it was going to help under-resourced communities in the Central Valley and across California to be more prosperous. And what happened over you know a 30-year period, we went from near first in education to near dead last. 
We built, you know, 20 plus prisons across the state of California and just one new university. And I think that folks are finally in California starting to move resources away from punishment in prisons and back in towards investment in education and job opportunities. But until that is actually deepened and furthered, it is going to continue to be what Ruthie Wilson called a kind of golden gulag in this state. And so we have an opportunity in California in passing the Schools and Communities First initiative to actually resource public schools across the state, to resource communities, and to reverse decades of funding for prisons instead of funding for education and employment and health care. And I think people need to take the long view because we're at a critical juncture in not just the history of California or their country, but just human history, period, where if we don't actually come together to take care of one another, we're not going to be successful in creating safe communities. So let's transition to that. Let's talk about what solutions look like. People, I think, have a better understanding of the problem as a real thing and not sort of like a manufactured thing in, in the activist community than they ever had. And I say the manufactured thing because I remember being in the street in 2014 and people were like, you guys are being dramatic. And we're like, no, I think I think the problem's pretty dramatic. But I'm not sure that people have as developed a sense of solutions. And you focus on solutions, which is what I appreciate about you. So can you help talk us through like what solutions actually look like that we could scale? Yeah, like some things are really simple. I talked about Marlena and James, and James was in and out of the system. He had come out of prison. His sister knew that he was really struggling um, psychologically. And she actually called the sheriff's department and said, you know, my brother's going through this, having challenges. And they basically said, look, we can't do anything until he's actually committing a crime. She later got a call and knew at that point that it was too late, that something tragic had happened. But if we had very simple measures to support folks who are going through mental health crisis and had that widespread, there would be numbers to call to support people, to de-escalate and to get them the services and supports that they need. And that wouldn't just be helpful for them, that would be helpful for their families and helpful for public safety generally. There have been programs in Tennessee in other places where folks are actually investing in these kind of crisis intervention programs that are run by social workers rather than police officers who are trained to de-escalate. And that kind of thing is just a no-brainer that needs to be brought to scale across the country. Um, There are probably like 18 other intervention points just within James's story that I talk about in the book, but that's just to give you kind of one quick example. What do you say to people who are losing hope in this moment? There are a lot of people who have done everything that they were told to do. They emailed, they called, they protested, they testified, they did all the things, and the world still hasn't changed as much as they wanted it to. What do you say to those people? I mean, the first thing that I will say is that this is an era of of deep cynicism. And your hope, your conviction is absolutely necessary and required. And we can't fall prey to the kind of divisions that these architects of anxiety want us to be victims of. The other thing that I will say is I have seen over my 20 years as an organizer things that people said would never be possible absolutely come true and be victories that were done and over with. 
So we started a campaign around the turn of the century. Young people were being isolated in prison cells for 23 hours a day. They were 250 miles on average from their family members inside of eight youth prisons across the state of California. And I got around a table not much bigger than the one I'm sitting at right now and talked with families and said, what do we want to do? And those families said, we want to close these youth prisons down. And as an organizer, I was like, I don't know, close youth prisons? But they were like, yes, that is what makes the most sense. They're abusing these young people. Three out of four young people are being rearrested within one year. Um, so this is terrible for public safety and for our children. Um, so we waged a campaign, and when we started, we went to the Capitol in Sacramento. We did what good organizers do. you got to have your T-shirts. We had our T-shirts on the front. They said, close CYA prisons. On the back, they said, open youth opportunities. People tried to laugh us out of Sacramento. They closed doors on us. They slammed doors in our faces. But we kept growing. We kept building. We kept engaging more families we were able to disabuse these legislators of their conviction that these families were the problem, that they were welfare queens, etc., and actually demonstrate that these families were trying desperately to support their children, traveling miles and miles to see their loved ones. And as a result of that, really pushing back on these really ancient narratives around youth of color and their families, we were able to move some legislators to say, we can do something different. Over an eight-year campaign, even though they said we never close a single youth prison, we closed five of eight youth prisons across the state of California. And guess what? Youth crime continued to decline during that same period. So this was a victory for human rights and a victory for public safety. So when people say it can't be done, know that sometimes it won't be done right away. But if we're patient, if we stick to it, it will happen. And the last thing that I'll say is just imagine if the folks before us gave up, right? I know, DeRay, you stood on the shoulders of a lot of folks behind you and said, no, I am going to bring attention to what's happening and raise the visibility of what's happening and trust that people will will come and see and get behind it. And that was incredible. It was incredible for me, even as an organizer who was in Oakland and kind of doing my thing. And I was like, wow, what? is happening in Ferguson. I need to be there. Showed up too late, but still was inspired. We came back to California and, and did some actions out here that I think were meaningful and positive and, and took a lot of inspiration from what was happening in Missouri. So know that it's possible is what I would say in short. What is a piece of advice that you have gotten that stuck with you? Um, I think of Michelle Alexander, and one of the things she said to me is like, don't puff up don't shrink, just stand in your values and in your purpose. And I think that's really important as an organizer and as an activist, because we're not always going to agree with everyone and with each other. And so sometimes folks throw stones, and ultimately we have to come back to what's our purpose and what are we trying to accomplish and really operate from that place, um, not from a place of ego, but also not from a place of like, you know, I don't deserve to be here. Just really standing in your purpose and what you value and leading from there. Boom. Cool. Well, Zach, thanks for making time today. We can see your friend of the pod and can't wait to have you back. Right on, DeRay. I really appreciate it. Take care, man. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week.